Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here this week. We are going to discuss what to do when our medication numbs us out and makes it so we can't feel our feelings. I'm also going to talk about why therapists can disclose certain information and when that's inappropriate. I'm then going to dig into the difference between rumination and overthinking, why we have to grieve something that we never had, and why we can close our eyes in therapy sometimes. Finally, I'm also going to talk about dating with a mental illness and why DBT can be so confusing. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into question number one. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're well. I've been diagnosed with BPD, otherwise known as borderline personality disorder, bipolar 2, complex PTSD, and anxiety. I recently stopped taking my mood stabilizer because it numbs my feelings. I just started EMDR with my therapist, and she indicated that I should probably go back on the mood stabilizer because my feelings are so intense and out of control. My thinking is that if I numb my feelings, then the EMDR won't work. Hmm. How can I work through my trauma and feelings if I'm numb? I feel that I need to feel them and learn to manage them, not numb them. I don't disagree with that. It sounds great. Am, um, am I correct in thinking, in my thinking, or can EMDR still work if I'm numb? Your thoughts on this would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all that you do for this community. Of course, of course. There is a follow-up on this, but let's jump into this portion first. Now, the truth about EMDR, the big piece to kind of acknowledge here, is that if we're so overwhelmed, we get dysregulated. Meaning, I know we use that term dysregulated a lot. It really just means if I feel so intensely filled with emotion that I'm not able to stay present. That could mean that I feel very panicked, very overwhelmed. It's hard for me to focus or concentrate. I could be dissociating, right? It pulls me out of self. Even if it just feels like just a little spacey, it doesn't feel quite as intense. Any of that is not going to be helpful in the EMDR, EMDR process because in order for us to safely and effectively reprocess a trauma, we have to be present. And so I can see why you'd think like, oh, if my feelings are numbed, then I won't be able to do any work on them. And part of that is you are correct, that if you are completely numbed out, you won't be able to reprocess them. But also if you're completely dysregulated and overwhelmed, you won't be able to reprocess them. And so what I would let your therapist, tell your therapist that you are concerned about this and talk it out. Because my hypothesis is that your therapist is concerned about your bipolar disorder and the potential, I'd assume, that it has to trigger symptoms of BPD 
as well as complex PTSD. And so in order to stop that overwhelm from happening, that kind of up-down yo-yoing effect that we can feel, especially with BPD, she's wanting you to be on a mood stabilizer so that we don't have those ups and downs, okay? Because all of these mental illnesses that you've been diagnosed with kind of, I can see how they not necessarily fit together, but kind of feed into one another, right? If we have bipolar two, that means that we spend a lot of time more in the depressive episode, but we also have hypomania. Hypomania can be a little bit impulsive, can be can mimic some of the symptoms of BPD and complex PTSD. And so, and then also it can trigger our anxiety and make it worse, right? You can see how these all kind of feed into one another. And having mood stabilizer on board is going to ensure that our symptoms don't get too out of control or feel too too overwhelming. And so I would assume she's hoping to keep you in what I would call that resilient zone so that you can process, so that the EMDR does work. But you have to let her know that you feel like it numbs your feelings out because so take all that into consideration, okay, right? We need, number one, we need to be present, not dissociated, not overwhelmed in order to reprocess. But then number two, we also need to make sure that, you know, we're in our resilient zone, that we're somewhere we can go up and down, but we stay in that like window of tolerance. And kind of the biggest piece, number three here, is going to be that if we're on medication that is too heavy handed, it's we're on too high of a dose, then we can feel numbed out. And so we might need to lower the dosage. Again, I'm like, I said this before and I'll say it again, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a doctor, but I have worked with a ton of patients and talked to thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of you actually online. And I do know that when we, our medication dosage is too high, it can have this effect. So let them know, talk to your psychiatrist, let them know you're experiencing this. Cause I've heard this from a lot of my patients that they'll switch medications or go up on a dose and they're like, and now I just don't feel like myself or I just feel kind of like foggy or spaced out speak up because it could mean that they need to lower our dose or change the medication and try something different. But I wouldn't just go all or nothing. I wouldn't say that you have to stop taking your mood stabilizer. We might just need to find you a different one that works or a different dosage that works for you. So you you feel better and in that resilient zone so we can process, but you also aren't so over-medicated that you feel like bl- completely blunted or numbed out. Okay. And there was a comment on this says, Katie, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. I also have been diagnosed with complex PTSD and chronic depression, and I struggle with overwhelming emotions and then depression and sometimes even suicidal thoughts when dealing with some of my trauma. And my psychiatrist has added another medication to my regimen to help stabilize this. The newly added medication has helped with these symptoms and also helped me to sleep. However, it does sometimes make me feel like I'm slightly numb emotionally, and I fear it may affect my healing process and work that I'm doing with my therapist. Do you think it will hinder it? Thank you for all that you do here. Of course. And this is a great question. And the reason I kind of didn't answer this part in the first component of it or first part of it is the fact that can we really do the work in therapy if we're numbed out? And Yes. The the short answer is yes. Even if we're numbed out, we can do some of the work. We can't do all of the work because we're not able to connect with what we're going through and we can't let our therapist know, hey, that feels a little bit overwhelming or where do you feel that? You know, my EMDR therapist always asks me that. She's like, where do you feel that upset? And I'm like, oh, probably in my throat, my stomach. And if I'm numbed out, I'm like, I don't know. And it's okay to not always know, but I think that there are some ways that this will slow our process down this will slow our therapeutic movement towards our goals, right? If we're working on a treatment plan, this is going to impede that a little bit. 
so while I do think it is important that you're stabilized and that we all feel okay, right? Your psychiatrist added it for a reason. Let them know that sometimes you're a little too numbed out. It might mean that we're just slightly on too high of a dose, or maybe, you know, we can do some work in therapy until we feel like we keep running this roadblock of like, I don't know what I feel here. I don't know what this is. I can talk about the tough stuff and I can utilize my coping skills and I can practice that, right? Maybe that it allows for that. But then when we come comes time to talk about the feelings associated, we can't. So just see where it's limiting you and speak up to that. Let your therapist and your psychiatrist know, hey, it feels a little too much. And again, that might be a too high a dose of medication, too much of a combination. But it doesn't completely stop us from doing therapeutic work. But we will run into that roadblock sooner or later. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, hey, Katie, in my last therapy session, my therapist told me that she recently had a client commit suicide. And I prefer to say dead, uh, died by suicide just because I know a lot of people have a, a visceral reaction to the word commit, like we're committing a crime. So I'll use that term going forward. So she disclosed that information to say that she wasn't fully present. So we were only going to be checking in before the holiday. Why is she? Okay. That was okay, but I feel really, really bad for her. That can't be easy. I felt like I should say something to her, but I didn't know how, I didn't know what to say. From a therapist's perspective, is there anything that I can do or say to her? I can't make it better. So I guess I just, I don't know. I feel sad for her and don't want her to get so overwhelmed that she drops me as a client or quits therapy altogether. Can I offer to skip a few sessions to give her time? Sigh. I know there's a lot here. Any advice would be appreciated. Now, I have a lot of thoughts. First of all, it's not up to you to essentially, without better terminology, to light yourself on fire to keep your therapist warm. You don't have to like fall on your sword. You don't have to skip sessions so that she can get a break. If she needs that break, she should take that break. And I think that's what she's doing, why why she's just doing check-ins before the holiday. She needs that break and she's taking it. And it's up to us as a ther- as therapists and mental health professionals to know when we need those breaks and to take them. You don't have to guess. You don't have to do anything. You should not cancel your sessions. You should not, um, not do the check-ins. You shouldn't do any of that. It's all on us to set those boundaries and that structure. Okay? Period. Now, I do have a problem with, I mean... I understand her disclosing this and I saw this in the comments below it too. So I know it's been addressed, but I really want to speak to it here that if, if it's a huge, if I probably would not disclose this, but if I had disclosed something like this to a client, I would first want to make sure that they don't have any thoughts of suicide, any potential past attempts or anything that's active because this can be incredibly triggering. And so I find her disclosure to be a little bit risky. And so that's why I wouldn't do it personally. Now, I know that the person who asked the question said that she knew about that and checked in with them ahead of time before disclosing. So, okay. But I don't really understand the need to disclose that. Uh, the, what I would have told one of my patients, because I've had stuff like, I've had, um, you know, issues with other patients. They have to be hospitalized, things like that. Like, it's a lot. And I will tell my patients, oh, I have another patient with a crisis and I, I hate to tell you this, but I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by it. So if I seem a little distracted, that's why. And 
I may disclose that, but I might just double up my own therapy sessions and journal a little bit more and try my best to manage it because it shouldn't bleed into your sessions too. But it might've hit her really hard. And so it is sometimes better to let let people know in case you like cry in session because we're human too, right? So that's why there's a lot to unpack here. It's very nuanced. There's not a, a direct answer like, yes, you have to do X, Y, or Z. If a client, you know, decides to take their own life, this is how you proceed sure, there's the legal ramifications of it and stuff like that. But when it comes to how do you manage as a person, we're human, right? And it must have really hit her hard. And you're a caring person. And that's why you feel for her. And you probably have a lot of empathy and maybe struggle with boundaries and potentially people pleasing. So I would encourage you to let her know this is coming up. But also recognize that you don't have to do any of that. She's taking care of it. And that's how it's supposed to be. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, I am so thankful for your videos and how you break things down into a simplified form of, yay, of course, so glad I could be here for you. So I'm hoping you can do this for my question. Could you please explain the difference between rumination and overthinking? I've been an overthinker for as far back as I can remember. It's both a blessing and a curse. I can create detailed stories in my mind and play them out, much like others watching TV. Mostly I find I overthink on conflict as I will replay the scene on repeat. I look at it from my point of view, checking my words, my heart's intent, my attitude, etc. Then from the other person's point of view, with the same investigation, I absorb the words. Is there truth? How could it have been better handled? Where did it go wrong? Etc. I'm trying so hard to make it make sense, but the situation or conflict has left me crushed and I can't get my footing. I don't know what to do now. I've been in therapy for somewhere over six months or so. Through binge watching your videos and others, I hear ruminating is bad. Yet overthinking has literally saved my life and helped me stay a step ahead at times. I don't know if I could even stop if I wanted to because sometimes I just want it to shut up. The why is important though. I have to find the why. Make it make sense. Okay, I love this question. Let's get into it. Now, first of all, it's kind of complicated. I'm going to do my best to differentiate the two. And the truth about overthinking versus rumination is that rumination is a form of overthinking. Okay. Because rumination is really when we, it's almost like a compulsory thing. Like when we get stuck in these loops, like you said, like you replay things over and over and over and like, look at it from your point of view, look at it from their point of view, look at what you said, da, 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 we replay, ba, 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 ba. that's rumination. Those are those negative thought loops. And that's why it's not healthy. It doesn't actually get us anywhere. It's, it's just cyclical. We just keep going around and around and around and we don't go anywhere, right? It doesn't get any better. Now, overthinking on the other hand, doesn't always have to be these negative thought loops. Overthinking can be, you know, looking at something from this perspective or that perspective, or maybe, you know, thinking through all the possible options. It's not this this loop of just replaying. I like to think of rumination as much more of like a past problem. We can't change it. We can't do anything. It's already happened. And we just keep spinning it. Overthinking tends to be more present or future focused. And so that's really how I differentiate them. I'm sure there's like maybe more specific definitions, but that helps me manage because we can talk about like, you know, rumination, overthinking, worrying. There's all different versions of it. Worry is very future focused, right? What if is this going to turn out? The the worry about things to come. And 
So that's how I really break them down. And I hope that makes sense. That's really just like in a nutshell what it is. So it sounds like you are doing both. It sounds like when you get caught in these loops of past, that that's you just ruminating. And you're just thinking it over and over and over in different kinds of ways. And there's, again, there's nothing we can do to change it. There's no way to get out. It's like we're caught like in a hamster wheel. We just keep running, right? Overthinking for visualization purpose, okay? So think of rumination, we're in a hamster wheel. Overthinking is when we have this roadmap from point A to point B and we can get there really directly. But overthinking is like all these little loops and squiggles. So it takes us like 50 times the amount of time to get to that that very direct location because we can't stop thinking about all the potential ways of what we could do and how it is and what do we feel and oh my God. And we, we really just overdo it, okay? I don't know if you like those analogies. I don't know if that's clear enough for you, but that's really how I would differentiate these two. And it does sound like you're doing both because it sounds like when you play things out that and like, you know, worry about like what's going to happen and anything that's not replaying. So it sounds like you like think things through a lot. That's the overthinking part. But the rumination, when you said that you like look from your point of view, their point of view, and you like replay a scene on repeat, that's all rumination. Okay. I don't want to talk more. I'm afraid I'm going to make it more complicated, but that's the difference. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Hey Katie, how can I live with the grief that certain times in my life will never come back? Especially when those are the times of childhood, which could have been joyful or lighthearted. And instead we're deeply affected by trauma. How can we heal wounds of missing something that we can never bring back because of the time that is gone? Now, another person said, had a comment says, Hi Katie, I also feel this way. Is it possible to mourn and miss something that you never had or didn't get to experience like others did? Thank you. Yes, grief, in a nutshell, the way that I would define grief is the the loss of something. Now, sure, we can say, well, you had to have something to lose it. Well, you did have a childhood and you lost the joyful, loving nature of childhood. And I believe we can mourn the things we didn't get. Like it would be, just take this for example. My dad passed away when I was 24 years old and I was really mad for a while and sad that he didn't get to watch me graduate from graduate school. He didn't get to watch me um, get married. He didn't get to watch me start my own business to speak, buy a home. There's so many things. Get my first puppy dog. He hasn't been, been there for any of that. And so I grieve the loss of the things that weren't there because it's still a loss, right? Other people got that. I know it exists. I didn't get it. And so that deficit is something that we mourn. And especially when we have trauma in childhood, we can mourn the loss of the childhood that we that we wished we had, that we wanted, that we, as an adult, maybe we've offered to our children and we see them at the age when we were abused and we think, Ugh, right? We can mourn for the things that we wish we should have gotten and didn't. And I know it sounds kind of complicated because we're like, how can I mourn for something that I never had? Because we know it exists. We're so connected now, which is wonderful, but it can also mean that we're way more aware of options out there and what's supposed to be like, even just the fact that I can talk to you right now is amazing. With the power of social media and the internet, which didn't exist when I was a kid, Children now can see the things that others are getting and recognize hopefully more quickly when things aren't right for them, things aren't working out or a parent is abusive, right? And that can make us sad. Why didn't I get that childhood? Why did my parent have to hurt me? 
And all of that's very sad. And when we didn't get something that we needed, we can grieve that loss. It is a loss. We don't have to have something first in order to be able to grieve it later. The knowledge of the lack is enough to need to grieve and to be able to grieve, okay? I want to make sure I answer all the questions. Let's see. Can you grieve certain times? Yes, you grieve that. And yeah, that you didn't get to experience. Okay. I think I answered all of your questions. I hope that that helps. Grief is interesting. I know we often talk about grief only when it comes to death and dying, but we can grieve all sorts of things. We can grieve past versions of ourselves. Man, I wish I was happy like I was that other time, you know, five years ago, two years ago, 20 years ago. I wish that I could be that way again, right? Or man, I really miss that friendship. The person's still alive, but we don't have that friendship anymore. Or man, I was, I really am grieving the fact that I haven't had a close friend. I watched Sex in the City and those four girls are so close and it really made me sad that I haven't experienced that. That's all grief. That's all sadness. And we have every right to feel it. And letting yourself experience it will help you move through it more quickly. And honestly, uh, I'm going to, I haven't put a video together on this yet because I'm not sure what my thoughts are completely. But there is a big piece to embracing the discomfort of certain emotions. Grief, sadness, upset, loss, those can all be really uncomfortable to feel. To allow ourselves to experience them can be really, ugh, and we want to turn away from them. And I encourage you when you're uncomfortable with an emotion, instead of turning away, allow yourself at least to acknowledge that it exists. Because discomfort, when it comes to emotions especially, but in a lot of other aspects too, but discomfort shows us where we need to grow. And so allow yourself to step into that a little bit. And it's okay to grieve something that wasn't there. Now let's move on to question number five. It says, hey, Katie, I hope you're well. Just wondering why I shut my eyes in therapy and whether you've witnessed this. I notice when therapy gets too much or hard, I close my eyes and can't seem to stop myself from doing this no matter how much I try. Am I just weird? And how do I stop this? Any advice? Thanks, Katie. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I've talked about it. Somebody said, I think she talked about this in the recent podcast. And I have, I just don't know which one. And I'm I'm sorry. But a lot of times we'll shut our eyes because to make eye contact with someone and talk about something that's really difficult, something that's painful, an old experience or an emotional thing that we're feeling right in this moment can feel too intense. Eye contact can feel very with Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, uncomfortable for lack of a better word, but I think a lot of it, it feels like vulnerable. It it makes us feel like we could be harmed and it, it can feel really unsafe. And especially if we have any trauma in our past, we're like, Ugh. and so to protect ourselves, to feel less vulnerable, to feel more able to open up and talk about the hard things, we might close our eyes. Um, it can also, I've had patients close their eyes 
And I'll even kind of instruct them to when we're trying to do more somatic work or get them into their body. Because sometimes we have too many distractions when our eyes are open. There's too much to take in. There's a lot of stuff going on in the office. We can look off at our favorite painting or our sculpture or our therapist or I don't know, want to look at our phone or anything. We can just distract by looking around. It's so easy. In my yoga classes, my teacher used to always say, I want you to try to keep your focus within the confounds or the, you know, the borders of your mat. And it's really hard. We want to look around. We want to see people. We want to, you know, be distracted, especially when we feel discomfort. And so you wanting to close your eyes could be for many reasons. But my number one hypothesis in your case is the fact that because when things get too much and gets too hard, I think part of it is protective. And part of it might be the fact that it's it's maybe an indication of our shutdown. I'd be curious if you dissociate after you do this or if it's a way to prevent dissociation from happening. I'd wonder the correlation there. But I think it probably to make eye contact with your therapist just feels overwhelming. And so we close our eyes and it's just done as a way to protect us. And yes, I've had patients do this in the past. Um, I even had a patient before who used to talk and like close periodically while they would talk. We dug into it, turned out to be kind of social anxiety driven, but it could happen for a lot of reasons. So let you know, talk, talk to your therapist about it if you can. Uh, journal about it, maybe give that to them if that's easier. Because if we're already shutting our eyes in therapy like every session, it might be that our therapy is too intense or too much or too hard. Maybe they're moving too quickly. And so we need to communicate that as well. But those are just some of the reasons that we can do it. Speak up, let your therapist know. And I believe that as you feel safer, or more neutral in therapy, this urge will go away. Okay? Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, I met my girlfriend in an eating disorder ward and I'm out and doing well, but she's still there and struggling. Do you think our relationship can work? I really love her. A lot to unpack here. Now, when we're doing well in our eating disorder and someone else is doing poorly, that can be incredibly triggering. And as a therapist, my knee jerk or gut reaction is to be like, be careful, protect your recovery. Now, you can still love her and that's fine. And I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying that it can be incredibly triggering and I want to keep an eye on that because that's really worrisome to me. And I wish it weren't this way, right? I wish she was doing better, but she's still in treatment. So hopefully if she gets out, like the step down process for her, that when you see her or when you, you're relationship would develop further, you'll be together and she'll be better and you'll both be better. But for right now, as long as we can minimize the triggers and the, you know, potential ways it could harm your recovery as well, as long as we manage that, I don't see any problem with it at all. The tricky part is going to be, you know, her getting better and continuing to grow together. Because the thing about relationships that I don't I don't even know, we don't talk a ton about relationships here, probably because a lot of us are like relationships, I don't know. But the the key with relationships is that when we grow and when we change, we choose to do it with each other or at least parallel to one another, meaning that we're moving in the same direction. We have similar goals, we have similar um, you know, dreams for our life and and things that we enjoy. That similarity doesn't have to be the same, right? We don't want to date ourselves, but that similarity in life goals, plans, et cetera, lines up is going to be key in the longevity of the relationship. Because when people grow apart, what that really means is that you're choosing to not include that person or you that you don't have the same desires as them anymore. And you are making a decision to, to separate slowly 
people often get too afraid to speak up and talk about it. So it happens really slowly over time. Now, when you're, if you're doing well with your mental illness and your girlfriend is not, the concern is that you need to get on the same page. And as long as you're on the same page and you both want to recover and get better and recovery is hard and complicated. I know that. I'm not saying there won't come days where you're like, I fucking hate this or she doesn't want to or whatever. But as long as your goals are joined and similar, you shouldn't have any problem. We should be able to work on it. But when it comes to mental illness in general, I think the key point here with with relationships is that in order for us to have relationships with people healthily, we have a mental illness, they have a mental illness, or we both have a mental illness, is the fact that we need to take responsibility for our mental health concerns, get help, and work on it. And that's it. As long as we're taking care of ourselves, then we can include somebody else in our life. But if we're not and we're being irresponsible and we're still damaging ourselves and others, that's not going to make for a healthy relationship. Sure, we can engage in them, but the chances of them being good for us long term is very, very slim. Okay? But you love her. Let's work it out. Hopefully she gets better and gets out of treatment soon. Final question. Question number seven says, Hey, Katie, happy Sunday. Well, happy, happy Thursday now, but it was happy Sunday when I took your question. It says, I've been doing DBT in therapy and it's getting frustrating. How do I tell my therapist that I'm confused by it all? And how do I know it's working? Can you please answer? Thanks. Of course. Now, a great book that I love, it's on, it's in my Amazon shop. Go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. It's called the Dialectical Behavior Therapy Workbook. It's by McKay and somebody else. It's like green and white, the cover is. And there's newer versions. You don't need newer versions. That book is beautiful. The way that it's written is incredibly simple and easy for laymen like myself, yourself, for regular people to understand. Sometimes I find therapy stuff can be too therapisty. can use language that nobody else but mental health professionals speaks. Like you guys know I use acronyms all the time and I try to define what those acronyms are. I use terminology. I try to let you know what that means because otherwise it's hard to follow. You're like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. So that book could be really helpful when you're learning a new tool or strategy and you, you're like, well, it does not compute. But please let your therapist know that this is really confusing. I will put in this caveat that DBT is very labor intensive and it's a lot. And that's why it's usually done in group and in our individual sessions. We have two sessions a week just with DBT stuff because it's so much. And the way that we can know if DBT is working depends on what part of it we're in because you kind of move through these pillars. The first being mindfulness, which is like closing your eyes, getting in your body, recognizing um, some of the signs and symptoms of emotions and upsets more early on, right? Like what are the early signs that I've been hurt by somebody? Hmm. And it forces us to kind of think about it, right? Having that awareness means that DBT is working. So that's one piece. Another ability to know if it's working is, are we able to identify some more of our emotions? And do we feel like we have some coping skills to allow us to step back and decide how to respond instead of reacting all the time, which is what we probably used to do? Are our uh, interpersonal relationships improving? You know, there's all sorts, do we feel like we can communicate more clearly about how we feel? Those are all signs that the DBT work is actually working. But I know it can be frustrating. I know it can be hard. It can be a lot. It's overwhelming. I also have some videos on YouTube about it. Happy to talk about it more if you guys want. Um, I am slowly piecing together maybe like a series just about therapy stuff, like 
styles of therapy, things that we should do or shouldn't do in therapy and all of that, just for a resource for questions such as this. But I do have older videos about DBT that might shed a little light on it and help you better understand what you're working on and if it is in fact working. Um, but DBT, I honestly think can help all of us. I think it's really incredibly beneficial for us to check in, be more mindful and learn how to respond versus react. Incredibly helpful. Um, but let your therapist know. I would just tell them DBT is a lot. Any therapist who teaches it or works with it knows that and would be like, oh, okay, what parts are confusing? They can like start breaking it down because I find it's a lot to cover in just a session. And if we have homework and we're going over the homework, blech, it's too much. So just let them know. And then hopefully they'll circle back. If they won't circle back and you feel like it's just this runaway train and it's super confusing, it makes you feel worse, then it's probably not the right treatment for you or the right therapist. We might want to look into other options, but I have faith. Speak up and let them know you're not alone. It is a lot to take in, but it can be so incredibly beneficial. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. Please share this podcast. That really, really does help. Also, you know, if there's anybody that you'd like me to have on the podcast, you can leave it in the comments down below. I'm always looking for new cool guests to have on. So I would love to invite people that you also find to be interesting. Take care of yourselves, do your homework, and I'll see you next time.